We were in the 89th Psalm, if memory serves me correctly, the week before communion. And last week we had communion service in the two-day meeting, so we left the Psalm. I'm going to try to return today and finish that if the Lord willing you pray for us. And just a quick review, this Psalm begins speaking about the psalmist's faith in God and His mercy and the faithfulness of His mercy. We have faith in God, in Christ. It is a fruit of the Spirit. God is faithful. We're going to cover some of that today. His very nature, His very being, He's faithful. He cannot be anything but faithful. But he talks about the Son of God and the Son of Man. He talks about the victories that he's had over the enemies being manifested to us in creation and creation and Israel and Egypt and all things. I said last week, or the last week we were on this, I believe, this is the Hebrews 11 of the Old Testament. It's about faith and the faithfulness of God and the, the works of God, the things that God does and manifests to us. For there are many more things that the Lord God does that we never even see or know about. But nonetheless, it does not mean He does not do His will in heaven and earth. He is faithful. And He is omnipotent. He's everywhere. He's over all things. He has power over all things. We live in a world of darkness. We live in a world today that's in my 62 years. I've never seen anything like it. I thought the 60s were bad and what little I know about them. But it seems today the whole nation has gone mad. The whole world has gone mad. I think personally we're living in the times the Apostle Paul talks about of a great falling away. If we are not, I do not want to be here when it comes. I don't like what I see around me. We're not to like the world. We're not to love the world. We're to look unto God and He is faithful. With that said, in the last few verses that we covered, He's talking about Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David. He's talking about what He will do with Him and for Him. Verse 24 says, But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with Him. This is the man, the man, Jesus Christ, who would be rejected of His own people, who would be delivered up by wicked men in religious circles to be crucified, to suffer, bleed, and die. And God is a God of means. This was the means that God would use to save His people from their sins. He without sin paid our sin debt when He was nailed to the cross and His body became sin for us. And God did not look upon Him for three hours. Consider that and remember as we go through this. And He goes on down to verse 28. Well, I'll go to 27. Also, I will make Him my firstborn. That's the first begotten from the dead. Reference back to the second Psalm. Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten Thee. That's His coming forth from the grave, defeating death. And He that had the power of death, the devil. People, especially the Jews, look for the Lord to come as a king and reign and rule in a rule of terror over the wicked, but Christ in the brilliance of God in the covenant made between the Godhead before the world was ever created came to this world and lowered Himself down to the hand of death, the death of the cross, to pay for the sins of His people. What a brilliant, brilliant mind God has that we cannot even begin to understand. This is the same God who rules and reigns over us today. This is the same God who is faithful to us as we live in this dark world. This is the same God who will not give us over. The same God who will carry us through this world. Carry us through death unto true life itself in the presence of Christ and will raise our body up and bring us all body, soul, and spirit into heaven and immortal glory for eternity. He said, My mercy will I keep with Him, Christ, the man, the man Jesus Christ, and my covenant shall stand fast with Him. That covenant is the covenant between the Godhead. That's not the covenant between God and Abraham or God and Moses. We break that covenant. God keeps the covenant. 
But the covenant between the Godhead is perfect. Each one in unity, each one in agreement, each one in deity. His seed also will I make to endure forever. That's the seed of Christ, whether we're talking about all the elect of God who will stand in heaven and immortal glory. They will endure forever. They will be forever. There will be no more death. The Lord Jesus Himself said, He that believeth on Me hath passed from death unto life. I've mentioned many times, consider the text. There are texts of the death of being dead in sin. There's a text in being dead to God. And there's a sense of never dying anymore because our soul will never die. And all three pertain to the children of God. We will never be dead in sin again. We will never be dead to God again. And we will never die for our soul will live forever. And God will raise up this body on the day of judgment and resurrection. But he says... Beginning a new text for today. We talk about, we think about punishment as a bad thing. We see judges and governors and presidents and those in all bodies of government, municipal to federal in this country, we think of punishment as being a punishment to those that disobey God. And truly it is. The purpose there is supposed to be for punishment and also for rehabilitation. But I'll tell you, straight up rehabilitation is very seldom because you cannot change the wicked. Only God can do that. But here we come to a text of chastisement. A text of God chastening His people. Deuteronomy 8 teaches us that the Lord chastens His people as a father chastens His son. As we talk about this, you bear in mind and you keep in mind that God loves you. God does not chasten you in wrath. Christ bore the wrath of God on the cross of Calvary so that we would not have to bear the wrath of God. I said for two weeks in a row, this would be the third. On the cross, He had no mercy. The man Jesus Christ suffered every aspect, every bit of anger and wrath on sin from God the Father, which was due to us. Therefore, when God chastens us in this world, God is not chastening us in anger because we did something wrong and He's going to beat us and make us hurt in that aspect, in that thinking. God does not chasten us in the way of someone who is judged by judges and magistrates of the world. God chastens His people in love. This is part of the faithfulness of God. This is part of the sure mercies of David. God chastens us as a father chastens his son. Now, I got whipped some as a child. I didn't get whipped near as bad <laughs> as I should have. Had my daddy known some of the things I did that he does not know, he probably would have chastened me a little more. But even with that said, my father, my daddy, I'll call him, did not chasten me in anger. He did not beat me unmercifully or something like that. He didn't whip me as much as I deserved, to be honest. It was always in a loving sense. That's the way I did with my children. Why do we do that? Because we love our children. Why does God chasten us in love? Because He loves us. And the chastening of God is a blessing. For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. Who the Lord does not chasten, they're bastards. That's not the cuss word meaning to be a cuss word. That just means that we're fatherless. The wicked are not chastened of God. They live in this world and they go on doing what they do. God may say enough is enough and they go to jail. He might say enough is enough and they suffer some punishment from God even up to the point of death. But God doesn't chasten His people like that. God chastens His people in love to correct us that we will walk 
in godliness. And therefore our blessings will be greater in the glory of Jesus Christ who died for us. He says, if His children... This is the children of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, He's our brother. But you remember this is talking about the Son of Man and the Son of God. He who would sit upon the throne of David forever. He who would reign over us. In Him we have new life. In Him we are born again. In Him we are adopted. So in this aspect, we are His children. If His children forsake my law, if we turn away from the law of God, if we know and we're not under the law, we're under grace. We are judged by grace. When God looks at us, He sees us holy and without blame. Ephesians 1 and 4. In the blood of the sacrificial Lamb, the Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ. But if we, we're judged in grace, but as we live and as we walk, and I've heard this my entire life, a child of God pays for his sins in this world. When we break the statutes of God, when we know the Old Testament law said thou shalt not, and we do what we should not, and none of us are going to be perfect because we're sinners. That's why Paul said in Romans 7, what I would, I do not. What I hate, I do. Yet it is not I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. We're sinners. We're going to sin. This is why God chastens us. This is why God corrects us. The bottom line of all things is for the glory of Christ. But in this chastening, we are loved and we have a blessing. If they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, what He's taught us, yes, in the law, but written it upon our hearts. Why do you have a conscience? Why do you hurt when you do something wrong? Because you belong to God. I would say to one living in misery who believes in God, and who knows God and is living in misery and sorrow, been there myself. You're feeling that way because you've turned away from the Lord. The Lord says, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. We've turned from God. Turn around and go back. And God gives you that repentance. Godly sorrow that's chastening leadeth thee to repentance. If they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, what God has written upon our heart, then will I visit their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Many today will not physically or corporally discipline a child. I disagree with that. I didn't beat mine much. Josh has probably grown before I put my hand on him. Uh, ben got a few as they were little, not nearly like was the case 60, 70, 80 years ago. Uh, from what I hear, I wasn't alive then, 70 or 80 anyway. But God chastens us. We see in the Old Testament where God, when His people were a physical nation, in the punishment of them, when they would turn from God into paganism, idolatry, and all the things that God hath taken us away from, God would raise up a nation against them. God would suffer a nation to conquer them. God would suffer a nation to rule over them until the wrath of God on sin and the chastisement of God upon His people was satisfied. And He would bring them back again. And I said the wrath of God on sin, not His people. Although all Israel are not the spiritual Israel. But with that said, our fathers would spank us and God spanks us from time to time. Now, with that said, physical chastening, does not bother me nearly as bad. My daddy would spank me 
I would bounce up, the pain was gone in five minutes, and I was right back to my old sinful self. But what hurt me was when my daddy would look at me with a look in his eyes like I had disappointed him. Now certainly God can punish us physically if He so chooses to. The 44th Psalm teaches us we suffer for two reasons. One, because we're the children of God and the world hates us. And two, because God chastens us, those He loves. That's why Paul said in Romans 8, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. But, when God inflicts the greatest sorrow, the greatest pain on a child of God, it's not because I've had physical stripes or you've had physical stripes. I speak of myself because I have had them many times. The greatest chastisement upon God is when you feel and you know without a doubt and you understand as David said, I, against thee and thee only have I sinned. It's like your daddy or your mama looking at you and you realize they're disappointed in you and sorrow fills your heart. How much more is it with the Lord? God can make us miserable. When we go somewhere we're not supposed to go or be something we're not supposed to be, God punishes us. And that sorrow is part of the repentance that brings us back. And all that is done not to hurt us, so to speak, but to chasten us and to reveal to us the love of God which is in our heart when we do repent and the Lord brings us back in again. With all this chastening, He says, nevertheless, nevertheless, even when I chasten, will I not utterly take from Him nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. Now, thus far in this, I've talked about God chastening us. Listen to me very closely. I'm going to tie this in with the chastisement because the Bible does so. I'm going to tie this in with the chastisement, Lord willing, that Christ bore for us. As He suffers, we suffer. For it is given unto you the behalf of Christ not only to believe on His name, uh, believe, but also to suffer for His name's sake. Christ suffered in the world, living in this ungodly world. We suffer in the world, living in this ungodly world. As Christ was hated, we are hated. As Christ was rebuked, as Christ was in reproach, disgraced, so are we. Because we're God's children and we're hated of the world. Nevertheless, my judgment will I not utterly take from Him, that is Christ, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. God the Father made covenant with God the Son. God cannot lie. God cannot fail. God is faithful. Because His covenant and His very being cannot lie. His very being cannot fail. His very being is holy and totally righteous. Therefore, He cannot lie. He cannot change. And as that covenant is called the sure mercies of David in the crucifixion of the Christ and the death, burial, and resurrection of the Christ, the man, Jesus Christ, we stand in that covenant. Every elect child of God. And it will not fail. It cannot fail. That's the faithfulness of God. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. One place in Isaiah, I think it's in chapter 45, I can't promise that. He said, who had declared this from the beginning? It was the Lord God. He said, my counsel shall stand. In another place, he says, who with whom hath the Lord taken counsel? God did not take counsel from anyone. He is all wise, all perfect. God declared. 
He declared it in covenant. The Father gave to the Son. The Son took them in agreement to die for them, to raise them up. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing Satan can do. There's nothing the angels and devils in hell can do to break the covenant of God. Christ died for you. He loves you. He fights for you. He stands with you. He carries you in His bosom and He chastens us because He loves us. His seed, let me back up. My covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness. I love that. By my holiness. There is one, one alone, one God. One God, Head, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I cannot explain that to you. I did not know how. But those three are one. Heard many explanations of it. Tried to give some myself. I recited just to take it as it's written. These three are one, Father, Word, Holy Ghost. And they bear record that He is God in heaven. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. God made covenant with David. Of the seed of thy body shall I sit upon thy throne. That's important. Body. The body of Christ. So here where he said he's making covenant, he's not actually referring to David, the type of Christ. He's talking about the covenant in eternity made with the anti-type, Christ Himself. The living Word of God. God said it. God declared it. God purposed it. And it is forever. It cannot change. He will not change. He cannot lie. God is not a man that He should lie, nor the Son of Man that He should repent. In one place it said, let every man be a liar, for God cannot lie. God is truth Himself. He is holy. He is holy. I wish I could explain that for about ten years. He is apart from. He is above. He is not like us. He's totally different. He's everywhere. Let that sink in. He's everywhere in this world. The Spirit, God, the Father. He's in your heart. He's in the air. He's all around us. He's in the atmosphere we breathe. He's in the atmosphere where all the billions of stars are. And He's beyond that in the third heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Where's God's domain? He's holy. He stands alone. Father, Word, Holy Spirit. Dealing with Christ in this psalm because He is our Savior. He is our King. He is the One who sits upon the throne of David reigning and ruling over the children of God in a governing way, in a loving way, in a protecting way, in a chastening way. His seed, His people, whether in heaven or in the world, the church, shall endure forever. His seed. Remember, a seed, a handful, a thread, a remnant shall be counted for a generation. Just the few that God sustains in this world with truth and doctrine. That's why He says, if they break My statutes, keep not My commandments, if they forsake My law and walk not in My judgments, if they turn aside from true doctrine, if they go beyond Christ and Him crucified and nothing else, if they tell you you've got to work your way there, you've got to accept, you've got to receive, you've got to make a choice, you've got to buy it, 
that takes away from Christ and Him crucified. The seed of God, the generation of God in this world teach one thing. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And these people, as long as this world is here, as long as the sun endures, when Christ appears, the sun in the sky will cease to be. It will be overshadowed consumed in the glory of God like everything else that is here created. It lasts as long as the sun, the seed of God in the world will, and the elect of God in its entirety will last forever. Now watch this. It shall be established forever as the moon. Let's look at the moon. I haven't looked at it in a few days. The moon is full. There have been stages in the world of time where God's church was full and where it flourished and prospered and godliness and membership was strong and membership was populous more so than it is now and Christ was glorified in the eyes of men in the church Seemingly, seemingly, because Christ is always glorified. Every all glory is His. But in the mind of a man to understand, it would have seemed to us that that light was brighter in that time because the church being full like the moon. And by the way, the church, like the moon, has no illumination of its own. The light of the moon comes from the sun. The light of the church comes from the sun, S-O-N, of God. And then we see the, the moon waning through the month. It gets smaller. It gets smaller. It gets smaller. We've seen that recent years. We see churches closed. We wonder, Lord, are You going to move the church? Are You going to take it away from us? Sometimes we feel like Elijah. Lord, they've killed Thy prophets. They've torn down Thine altars. And I, only I, remaineth. But what did God say? I have reserved unto Myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to all. Now, as the moon wanes, it comes to the new moon when there is no light at all. And brethren, I kind of sometimes in my foolish, sinful nature of man feel like the church is almost gone. We're almost to that point where there's nothing. But then as the moon and cycles and seasons and the wise man Solomon said there's a time for every purpose under the sun, a season for it. Then we see the moon coming forth again and we see the light shining again and growing and growing and growing. As long as there is time, God will have a people somewhere in this world to bear witness to the Christ, the Son of God. The moon moves around. The church has moved around Jerusalem, Rome, England. Been here for a while. Pray to God it stays here. Got some starting up in Mexico. Got some starting up in Africa. If we do not occupy the kingdom... It may be moved. That's chastening too. Remember going through Revelation. The Lord will remove the candlestick. But even that's done in love. It shall be established forever as the moon and a faithful witness in heaven. Selah. The word means arrest. I think about that this way. What has been declared has been declared. Pause, rest, meditate upon what the Scripture says. What the psalm says. 
but thou hast cast off and abhorred. Now we're digging down here to the thoughts of the Jews and the thoughts of even Christ's disciples of the crucifixion. Thou hast cast off and abhorred. If thou be the Son of God, save thyself and us. If he be the Christ, let him come down from the cross. He calleth upon Elias. Let's see if Elias will save him or have him. Ridiculing in rejection the very Son of God. With the Jews in that day. And who were they? The religious elite were condemning him. Thinking, considering, believing that he was cast away from God. We esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. Hating the Son of God Himself. Refusing to be judged by Him. Thou hast cast off and abhorred. God's cast him off. God hated him. God didn't love him. Thou hast been wroth with thine anointed. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be anointed of God. Yea, in fact, they saw themselves when Christ was baptized in the river Jordan where the Spirit of God came down upon him and still rejected him and still considered him smitten of God. Thou hast made void the covenant of thy servant. You see that covenant in John 6. Steve mentioned it last week. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. And they say, He's made no covenant with God. All His powers, all the things and works that He did are after Beelzebub, Satan. That's what they accused of the very Son of God Himself. They, they, they esteemed Him smitten of God and afflicted. Thou hast profaned Thy crown by casting it to the ground. That the crown of cross of the Son of God was cast to the ground upon the cross of Calvary. This is what they felt. This is what they thought. This is the way they spoke and talked. It wasn't cast down. It was hid, covered. Many of the Jews were blinded, remember? It was hid, it was covered. The natural man receiveth not the things of God, remember? It's hidden today for many, but to a few, to the generation that's counted as a seed, to those that God sustains, to those that God reserved for Himself. They see this. And even the very disciples of Christ, after He was crucified, when He lay in the grave, read the Scriptures, distraught soul and spirit, we trusted this would be the Christ. We trusted this would be the Messiah. Did not know Him. If you do not believe in the election of grace, understand this point. They walked with Him and knew Him not until He revealed Himself to them when He came forth from the grave. Did not our hearts burn when He was here? <clears throat> Thou hast broken down all the hedges around Christ. And because we're contained in Christ, that also speaks of His people. When Christ was crucified and raised up, when He ascended back to the right hand of the Majesty on high, there was a great time of growth and prosperity. The moon was full. The light was shining. Great growth in the church in Jerusalem. And then turn to Acts chapter 8 and read of the great persecution. The killing of His disciples. The killing of Christians. The persecution of Christians. The imprisonment of Christians. Paul himself is the God not wonderful. Turned that man around in a heartbeat. How? By revealing Himself to him. Paul was looking to kill Christians, not love them, and God touched him. But my point being, that time, 
Thou hast broken down all his hedges. It appeared in that day and age to those that were persecuting the church that God had removed the hedge from among them if there ever was one. Thou hast brought his stronghold to the church to ruin. That's what they thought. But God said it'll be here forever. It's here today. Somewhere it will be here tomorrow. When the Lord returns, will He find faith in the earth? Certainly! Will He find it in us? That's the question. All that passed by the way spoiling, walking in front of Him, ridiculing Him on the cross, He is a reproach, a disgrace to His neighbors. Thou hast set up the right hand of His adversaries. I'm going to say this, and I hope it makes good sense very simply. God is a God of means. God does not call sin. God didn't cause them to crucify the Christ. They didn't have authority to crucify the Christ from God. God foreknew it. God foresaw it. God suffered it to be. And God used their hatred, rejection, and killing His very Son, although they didn't kill Him. They could not. He laid His life down. And God used that to redeem His people from their sins. It appeared to them that God was with them. Thou hast made all His enemies to rejoice, and that they did. For just a little season. Reckon how they felt when they found out the stone was rolled away. Reckon how they felt when they began to hear from His disciples that He is risen! Fear. Terror. Trembling. Thou hast also turned the edge of His sword and has not made Him to stand in battle. The Lord laid aside His glory and came into this world. He did not come as a conquering king with an army. He came to lay His life down. Peter said, I'll go to death with you. The Lord said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou savest not the things of God. For this cause... What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, for this cause to die came unto this hour. He did not bear sword. Peter drew a sword in the garden when Judas betrayed him with a kiss, cut off Malchus, the servant of the high priest's ear. Now listen closely to the Scripture and rightly divide the word of truth. Put thy sword in thy sheath. Shall I not drink of the cup the Father gave me? Shall I not lay down my life? Shall I not raise it up again? Shall I not do the Father's will? Shall not I save my people from their sins? I've heard people try to make that so weak need. You don't have a right to defend yourself. You don't have a right to fight for your family. You don't have a right to protect yourself. You don't have a right to have a gun or a sword or a knife. What did the Lord say in Luke? He that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Because He was going back to glory with the Father at His right hand and He knew full well we would be in this world with wicked people. You have a right to defend yourself. He told Peter, you take that sword, you'll die by that sword. He was talking about being delivered into the hands of sinful men and laying His life down for His people, which was the will of God in the covenant. But He gave us a sword, the sword of the Spirit, by which we walk, by which we worship, by which we preach, by which we pray, by which we sing, by which we are kept in this world, by which we know God. And Christ and former things are brought into remembrance. 
Thou hast made His glory to cease. They just didn't see it for a little while. And cast His throne to the ground. The grave. But He came forth. The days of His youth hast Thou shortened. Okay. The years of a man are three score and ten. That is what Scripture gives from the Lord. Men in the Old Testament, we see they live hundreds of years. Hundreds, hundreds of years. Sin in the world, death by sin, sickness, disease, lifetime cut short, God Himself cutting it short because of sin. And we are all sinners and come short of the glory of God. God have mercy. Seventy years. The given lifespan of a man and fourscore, eighty by strength. A strong man spiritually and physically, but more important spiritually, is given to live longer. And someone says, well, why do the wicked live so long? Job, I believe chapter 25, maybe 26, we're going a while, talk, tell us, tells us why the wicked live. God does not concern Himself with them. They live, they prosper, their children live, they do not worship God, they do not know God. The best thing they'll ever have is what they have here in this dark, sin-cursed earth, which they love while they're in rebellion to God. But their day comes also, which they will be destroyed. This text is dealing with Christ and His seed, the children of God. Now, 70 years... Luke chapter, I just read this last night and I don't have a memory. Three, it's got to be, it's in the genealogy. We find in Luke chapter 3, after, in verse 22, after the Holy Ghost ascended bodily shaped like a dove upon the Lord, and God said, Thou art my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. When Christ began His ministry, okay? And Jesus Himself began to be about 30 years of age. Why is that? Because in the law, and Christ kept the law to a jot and a tittle. In the law, a man had to be 30 years old to obtain the priesthood, which Christ, even though He was from Judah, would obtain. He kept the law. He's 30 years old. That's not even half of the lifespan of a man given by Scripture. He preached about three and a half years, therefore He died. He was crucified. He laid His life down somewhere around 33 and a half years of age. He's not yet to the middle of the lifespan of a man. The Bible says the days of His youth has thou shortened. His days were cut short. Thou hast covered with... Him was shame. He for the transgressions of my people, the elect of God, was he stricken. Thou hast covered him with shame. He bore our shame. And again, Selah, arrest, pause and meditate upon that. As we used to say, think about that a while. How long, Lord? This is the psalmist. How long, Lord, wilt thou hide thyself forever? Shall thy wrath burn like fire? Consider the disciples when Christ is in the grave. 
We trusted. We trusted. This is the Christ. He's gone. What now? Shall thy wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. The time of Christ and the time in the grave. <laughs> he was not there long enough for his body to decay. I meant to bring this out last week talking about communion, and actually may have, I don't remember, I was so tired. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. He did not stay in the grave long enough to begin to decompose. My time is short. Remember how short my time in the grave is. And the psalmist is asking, you notice there's a question mark here? Wherefore hast thou made all men in vain? Lord, are we made in vain? We trusted in Thee. That's what they said. We trusted that He would deliver us. Are we made in vain? Are all things in vain? Well, first and foremost, and I agree with Solomon, all things in this world are vanity. The things of the world are vanity. That means they're empty. They're nothing. As I said, yea, less than nothing. Has thou made all men in vain? Let me assure you, <laughs> there's nothing that God purposed. Nothing that His tongue has said. Nothing that He's brought forth. There's nothing in His counsel that's in vain. Every single elect child of God, white, black, Indian, Asian, doesn't matter. Every tongue, many tongues not spoken anymore, many languages. God had a people among them. Every elect child of God, when they die at the moment of conception, the seeds have come together. It is life in God's eyes. Die in the womb to the old and decrepit as we all approach unless the hand of death takes us. None of that's in vain. Every child of God, every one He loveth, every one the Father gave the Son will be raised up. I've got to move. Before I turn this page, give you one more. Because it is not in vain, because everyone who hates God, everyone who dies in their sins, a thief on the cross, was a sinner and hated God and rebelled against Him to the time of His death, but He didn't die in His sin. You remember that. Don't judge God by man's feebleness. The point of death given life. But every one of the wicked to the glory of God shall inherit the everlasting fire for as long as the righteous inherit glory and Christ is glorified, so also shall the wicked have their inheritance in the lake of fire and Christ is glorified. What man is he that liveth and shall not see death? We'll all die unless we're alive when the Lord returns. We see two that did not, Enoch and Elijah. May have been others that we don't know about. But the point is, we, 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 we're going to see death. Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? We cannot deliver ourselves from the grave. We cannot defeat death. Christ defeated death. And He defeated death for us. The point is, man cannot do that. Selah. Rest. Meditate upon that. Consider what this psalm is about. The faithfulness of the mercy of God. Lord, where are Thy former loving kindness? Which Thou swearest unto David in truth. This again, dealing with the time of the crucifixion. How they must have felt. How they must have wondered. The wicked rejoicing. That man is dead. 
That man that claimed to be God is dead. He came from Beelzebub. He came from Satan. He's dead. Rejoicing, thinking they had him defeated. Oh Lord, how brilliant. How magnificent and what a love. And His disciples in great persecution. Brethren, do you feel like we're in persecution today? Do we get sorrowful at our sins of omission and commission? God chastens us. That's in His mercy. He sets us straight. You see the world around us crumbling like it was in the day of Christ when He lay in the tomb. I'm gonna say this. Debated it for a minute, but I got I got a minute. One reason I believe that he stayed in the grave three days and three nights because the Jews believed the Jews who rebelled against him, the Jews, his own people received him not. The Jews believed past tense. That the body had to be dead for three days and three nights before the spirit left the body. He was in the grave three days and three nights, just like John was in the belly of the whale. Lord, where thy former loving kindness? They were right there. They were hidden just a while. Which thou swearest unto David in thy truth. They're here today with us. Remember, Lord, the reproach of thy servants. Remember the reproach of Christ bearing our sins. Remember the reproach of us today as we're hated by the ungodly in the world. How I do bear the bosom, Christ, do bear in my bosom the reproach of the mighty people. Now, there's two ways to look at this. He bore the reproach or the disgrace that the wicked have of Him. He bore our reproach for us, that we bear it not. Whether you want to consider the mighty people, the Jews, the religious zealots and governments of man, or whether you want to consider it the children of God, the people mighty in Christ. I have it either way in both, matter of fact. Wherewith thine enemies have reproached, O Lord, wherewith they have reproached the footsteps of that anointed. They reproached the Lord Jesus Christ. But the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God, manifested to us in the man Jesus Christ, who was born in this world from a virgin, laid his life down, raised it up again, bore our sin, sickness, disease, all that we have, and it was all wrong and dead and sinful. Our acts, our being, our self, our very existence. He bore it all and saved us from our sins. He is faithful. He is faithful. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen. It is so. And amen. He confirms it.